This is an ABC podcast. Some of you were shocked. And I know it was hard to take. A couple of weeks back, we revealed that Annie Smithers, chef and friend of the program, Annie Smithers hates pavlova. I know, shocking. But it's okay. Today, a meringue alternative. This is Blueprint for Living. I'm Jonathan Green with Places, Spaces, Food, Gardens and Design. And in a moment, Annie's recipe for meringue roulade. You won't want to miss that. Uh, Plus, I go weed foraging in a Sydney park. More yumminess. And Colin Bissett reclines in a well-stuffed Chesterfield. But first, design and art. Can you tell them apart? You can escape art, but you can never escape design. Uh, that, that is my new favourite quote. Um, and, and they're words that belong to our next guest, a man who has been an art historian, an arts broadcaster, a curator in the visual arts, a substantial career over decades. And you might have come across his work in books, TV, radio documentaries for the BBC or exhibitions he's curated for the Royal Academy But in early 2020, timing, uh, he dived into the world of design and became the director and CEO of the Design Museum, the UK's only dedicated national museum to all things design. And his name is Tim Marlowe, and he joins us from London. Tim, hello. Greetings. Good to speak to you. I I particularly like that quote, (laughs) the inescapability of of design. Well, I I try not to... um speak with the zeal of a poacher turned gamekeeper and of course my heart and soul remains fully with with the visual arts but i i've got this some um, curiosity now and increasing passion for design which I mean, a lot of my friends and colleagues in the in the art world talk about the collaborative nature of visual arts and 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 and, and its porosity and this, mm. it's true but design is literally everywhere good and bad and design can't exist without a kind of collaborative network. And that's not just a, a, a creative collaboration. It needs capital. It needs entrepreneurship. It needs brands. It needs outlets and so on. It needs commission. And so how, however much you know, the arguments are about the hierarchy of the visual arts, because design is merely functional or often functional, and then design is often seen as elitist, you know, the notion of the designer, designer object. So design yes. gets kicked from both ends. It, it's so central to who we are and how we live and how we might live better in the future and how we might mediate our relationship with our planet that I just keep wanting to make that point. And, and it's sometimes, with, with, particularly with um, younger visitors to the, to the museum, who kind of get it anyway, but you see the kind of realisation that design really is um, for everyone and involves everyone. It isn't just this slightly detached idea that is applied to something uh, as a, I don't know, as a badge of honour or, or, a, or some, something commercial, I suppose, or a badge of, of commercial potential. The church, as you point out, is broad, but, you know, the ubiquity of design does not guarantee its quality. No, and I think the, one of the... We, we did a show at the Design um, Museum a year and a half ago that actually is going to tour. I don't want to jump the gun, but it, it may be coming somewhere near you uh, sometime in the next few, uh, few years it was called it was it was i think that's a hope but i think there are serious negotiations taking place it was called waste stage and it looked at i mean it looked it looked at many things but the circular economy the, f- the future through material science and, and um exploration but with design and designers having in many ways holding the key to, to whether we can live sustainably in, in, in a better way with our planet but we we began the show by acknowledging that design was utterly complicit and fueled mass consumption mm-hmm. um, for what seemed good at the beginning, but now clearly for bad, and um, and design has to own up to its responsibilities, of course. Um, uh, but design is such a, a vast concept; it's kind of nebulous in a way. There's well, so many well, parts is, of it. What is it? But, but, what but is bad design? design? Yeah. What is design, Tim? Fly <laughs> <laughs> me. Look, it's seven o'clock in the morning, my time. I mean, um, how long have you got? No, no. Well, no. I mean. Do you know what? Design as we understand it, as I say, in, in, in the West, but since the Industrial Revolution, it, it has often been, has been mainly associated with things. Mm. And you know, uh, the, orga- the organisation and the imagination and the realisation of objects and things. Design now is, we now understand it. I mean, it, it, town planning, placemaking, artificial intelligence, 
I mean, the speculative design, critical design, uh, in other words, thinking about what how things might be. But it it does mean something still. So I think I see design as a as a series of groupings. It's like a kind of series of families, often dysfunctional. And the, and and so there's you know there is fashion, there is graphic design, there is industrial design, there is uh, digital design, there is architecture, um, and so on. You get all these things, but it's really interesting because art. Again, I always make the parallel where where, where I've come from where I'm still you know, partly there. But it, when I was programming at the Royal Academy, if I, if I, if I did exhibitions, say Ai Weiwei or the Renaissance nude or mm-hmm. um, Roman sculpture or Oceania, you know, we did a whole sort of a wonderful exhibition. Um, uh, uh, Te Papa in New Zealand were, were great collaborators with that. Now, those are very disparate subjects, but the core audience at the Royal Academy of, you know, the nearly 100,000 friends of that organisation, they let you know what they liked and, and didn't like when in your programme. But they all came to those shows, a kind of leap of faith, but a kind of understanding that art with a capital A meant something. I'm not sure with design, actually, whether if you're going to come to a Ferrari show or you come to a show around sneakers or you come to a show around waist stage or you come to a show looking at Amy Winehouse through the lens of design, I'm not sure the core is anywhere near as substantial. Hmm. And so, um, so design with a capital D in parallel is, is a more nebulous idea. But at the same time, you, you have all these different groups, these different tribes who are fascinated by areas of design or practitioners who are fascinated and, and engaged with particular areas of design. And, um, and, and the key for me at, at the museum now is, is there a core? Is there critical mass? I don't know. But the potential to engage with everyone and anyone or the broadest possible audiences, which all museums are talking about now, I mean, that is clearly there. So we have the opportunity, I think, and this isn't a pub for the museum, but I think those of us who are working in design, we have a massive opportunity to try and engage people culturally, creatively, socially, politically through design in ways that other, other art forms just can't. Does that mean, as, as a museum director, does that mean a, a scattergun approach which appeals to all those different camps or does it imply you defining some notion of, of capital D design? I think that's a really, uh, I mean, that's a killer question and it's the one I wrestle with all the time. Uh, and I don't want scattergun, but I do want to, to grasp the opportunity that you can be very disparate in the subjects you look at through the lens of design. We just did football. I mean, Funny enough, there's been loads of really average shows about art and football, uh, but no one's ever looked at you know the evolution of, you know, the, the, the great global game over the last 150 years through mm. the lens of design. So we have all this opportunity. But I do think the notion of design with a capital D, that somehow this creative approach to thinking and and, uh, and realising, imagining and realising, does have some kind of core. And I think it's probably, I mean, I, th- I think... I think the way of anchoring it in, in public consciousness is around sustainability, is around actually how, how, how can we design better uh, so that things are um, you know, less damaging, more sustainable, greater longevity and so on. And we've, we've managed to set up this thing called Future Observatory at the museum, where we are the, the centre of 15 design research departments in universities around the country. And, and it's just starting. And, with the, and the theme is, 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 is net zero. But so... Uh, there'll be a whole range of disparate uh, researches going on. Um, um, and our role is sometimes to showcase, display, sometimes symposia, podcasts, publications. But uh, um, And so our role is not just to bring that to public consciousness, but actually put a, a design researcher or, or a, des- a young designer in contact with a business or a brand hmm. or a policymaker in local government or lobby. And actually, that's both, I think, game-changing for the idea of what a museum can, can do or, or should be trying to do but it somehow will it, it, in, in different ways people will understand that when they look at the range of different areas that researchers are looking at they'll understand that what binds it together is design and and and, um, and that i hope will um, will start to define a kind of core i mean i'll give you one example because yeah. it, it's it, it's quite abstract what i'm talking about but so there is this there's a wonderful young she was architecture trained but a, a designer researcher now called I mean, she's not global really now, but but two years ago, her name was Natsai Audrey Chiesa. She, she's founded a company called um, Faber Futures. And she has pioneered working with a, 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 the bio design department, sorry, the bio labs um, at University College London. She's managed to pioneer a form of, of um, dye, microbiological dyeing that requires virtually no water. So the, the the fabric that she's able to produce, which looks like a kind of more elegant sort of version of tie dye, 
is 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 doesn't require the thousands and tens of thousands of gallons of water to produce a sort of relatively small amount of that material. And that, and she is, I mean, she's now looking at, in other areas, but that is now commercially viable material. And 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 that's the if you give that as a concrete example mm. to people, they understand the practicalities, the collaborative nature, the need, need for research and, and, and development, and then it ha- it can have serious. You know, commercial, but also sort of social overturns, and 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 that's that's what we're looking to sit, sort of do. But but we'll be led by what the design researchers are doing, rather than saying we want you to look at, I don't know, transport or whatever. That they'll find they'll find their their interests, and we need to try and hook them up with with people that can make it you know make it make it practicable or, or viable. I mean, this is this wonderful shift that you have made from from that fine art environment where notions of the future and and suggestions as to how it might be improved can can be made and they can be they can be a polemic or they can be subtle but they're sort of lost within the work they're a, a thing of the imagination of the, re, the recipient of the work in in design it is such a, a direct impact these are things which are being made to shift stuff yeah i think that's that's true although there is a, there is a there is an area of design called speculative design or critical design people like fiona raby arabian dunn do this where they do they 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 it's, it's sort of ballard you know jg ballard ballardian sort of near mm. future imaginings of contraptions that i mean they, we've got something on on by them we've got an exhibition around surrealism and design at the moment but surrealism up to the present and into the future and so of course there's a dali a wonderful dali may may west so you know so um sofa made of you know the lips and so on but but <laughs> the rabian done at the end have got these fantastic green contraptions where they've got photographs of people wearing them and I mean, they, they look, well, they look crackers. They look wonderfully surreal. But they're actually, they're, they're imagined devices for foraging for food in an urban context. You know, um, <laughs> well, if, if how the optimistic. Kind of critical mass. <laughs> so, yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. But, but I, and, I and, and that's a blurring. And that's a blurring from design into art. And mm. art actually sometimes has blurred and will blur into design, you know. Artists like Oliver Larson or um, uh, uh, designers like Thomas Heatherwick, those Ai uh, Weiwei who we're making a show with next year. These are people who've worked across disciplines. But but I do I would say that art still is fundamental. It's fundamental to who we are as human beings. Um, and individual artists trying to wrestle with their place in the grand scheme of things, and by extension through empathy and our experience of it, our our place in the grand scheme of things, it matters. It matters fundamentally. You know, it defines us as humans. And in a sense. Design uh, is how I kind of see it. I mean, and now I'm reaffirming the hierarchies I'm trying to knock down. But design and making things better through design is part of, um, uh, of trying to realize a world where we can experience you know, uh, uh, the, the great capacities of the human imagination with less threat. I mean, it's art, of course, has a, a role to play in realizing threat. But art is also just a kind of rumination about you know, our time on Earth and what we're going to do with it. And, that, and that's important, too. It's not a luxury. It's essential, I think, to our, to our core. The museum was founded by Terence Conran, and and of course his his abiding conviction was was about the necessity of making stuff, um, of, of creating objects. I mean, is that is that where the, the sort of the rubber hits the road with design that it has this 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 concrete outcome? To some extent, yeah, and that, to some extent that still applies. Terence was larger than life, visionary. I mean, a great entrepreneur, philanthropist, uh, collector, but actually a designer too. I mean, from the beginning, uh, restaurateur. He changed the changed the cultural landscape of this country. I mean, he always claimed that um, British sex lives were improved by him because he introduced the duvet to, to Britain in, in, you know, in, in, in the Conran shot. Um, but, but Terence had a very strict, strong view about the need to understand the processes of making. And I mean, I you know, I wasn't close to him, I knew him, and he he and he was. He was frail in his latter years when I took on the museum, but he rang me pretty well every week, asked how things were, and actually embraced, even though in the past he'd fought quite heavily against a, 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 an expansive or nebulous approach to design. Mm. I mean, he had an idea that it was around product, but he, he was generous enough and visionary enough to want to let this this museum start to reflect and explore where, where design could go. And, and to his credit, he, he never wanted it to be called the Terence Conran Museum. It was always the Design Museum. So that's, in a sense, he, that's, that's been facilitated. But I think this idea about making and understanding the processes of making is a really critical one for many 
actually now because we've become so detached from things you know the world's mediated often through screens and, and the digital and then we go into a world where we have no or, or little physical engagement with it. And, and that's really important and, and i particularly in in the uk i mean for the last 30 years we've just stripped out manufacturing and he was vehemently against that and actually there's, there was an there's a lovely um overlap with Ai Weiwei, who recently, he, I mean, he's, we, the show with him next year that we're doing, which is the first big show looking at his work through the lens of design and architecture, is called Making Sense or Making Sense. And um, I don't know if I can swear on your product. You can always cut it out or beef it. But <laughs> we'll have we, we have a, a thing in our museum, which, which you have a go. It says designer, maker, user. And it's this wonderful thing by the Myerscroft studio where polychromatically the word designer and then next maker and then user and it, it, that's the theme of our collection displays and we wanted way way to stand so we suggested that he stood next to maker uh, because of making sense for one of the press photographs and he started chuckling and i said to him why are you laughing Wei? and he said designers aren't makers anymore and i said what are they and he said they're fuckers <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> And if you want the postscript, which you're going to have to cut out, I said, "Oh, well, what are artists?" And he said, "We're fucked." Anyway, um, I think that's a t- I think that's a t-shirt aphorism. <laughs> yes, but I think fair. to his point, I think to his, to his point, many designers don't have a sense of making. They design, imagine, and it's made elsewhere. Now, I'm not saying that you know Chippendale made his own furniture, or I'm certainly not saying you know the the, the, the great designers of the of the um, 20th century um, handmade, but they understood processes and craft and materials, and I mean, Weiwei's obsessed with that. You know, those, all those wonderful mm. um, marble pieces. Mm. These are made by, you know, Chinese craftsmen, um, uh, usually men, but uh, uh, Chinese craft people whose fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers also understood those traditions and passed them down. And that's not nostalgia. That's keeping alive material culture rather than everything being just kind of sent off to a fabricator and sort of laser cut. You know, he, he, and, and I think Terence had that view as well. And I, I, I subscribe to that. You know, and actually, even the digital world, I don't know about you. I'm, 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 I'm trying to understand it. My head space is sort of limited, but I feel like I, I realize I understand so little of how the world actually functions. And, you know, and I can at least start with that around me, the tangible, and understand how mm. things are made. And I think if we understand more how things are made, we probably get, a, more broadly speaking, better design. But on the other end of that is, is probably the fact that a lot of design currently is not even done by humans. There are, there are some definite moral and ethical issues around that. But, but um, I mean, and that's, in a sense, to be embraced and to be worked with. But how things are laser cut or how things are designed through uh, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and then manifesting themselves in physical objects is still, one still needs to understand something of the process of material and the process of turning material into something else. Mm. Um, but I, I, I was recently in the, um, at a culture summit in Abu Dhabi at the Design Museum as one of the partners, and I did a session with a robot um, who identifies as female and an artist called Ada. And I have to say, if any, if any of your listeners want to have a sort of 10 minutes of amusement, it's on the Abu Dhabi Culture Summit um, website, this interview with Ada. I mean, I had done a conversation with it before where I could go off message and it was kind of great, but chaotic, but sometimes it couldn't really answer and other times it could. So these were questions I'd submitted so that it could be better prepared i occasionally went off record or off off um, off piece with, with it and sometimes it could answer and other times it go that is complicated i will get back to you but aside from me standing on a stage with this robot who's extraordinarily um glamorously dressed and it looks like a sort of robotic dating agency <laughs> but the interaction between a human being and a robot and the way that this robot coerces me to start to treat it as human, although I am performing for an audience, you know, uh, because we're on a stage. Yeah. It's really interesting and quite frightening, too, quite frightening too. It is remarkable territory. I mean, speaking of, of, of collaborations and cooperations with the museum, you, you recently participated in a, a cross-cultural exchange with, with Australia on, on fashion and architecture. But what happened there? What, what was in that series? We're in the middle of it. It's re- honestly, it's it's really inspiring. I'm now claiming that we are the most sustainable museum because instead of sending the museum director to Australia, which I, by the way, I, I, I do want to, I haven't been to Australia for four <laughs> years now, but Australia's come to us. It's been wonderful. So last weekend it was mainly fashion. So we had uh, we had the wonderful Lucy McRae actually talking about w- wearable technologies in the future and this brilliant hug machine. I mean, she's an artist, designer, futuristic thinker, and then we've had all sorts. I mean, romance was born. And uh, um, 
uh, Tim Nickel Ford and, and Kate Louise Nickel Ford. Julie Bit, so they're fashion designers, as you you know, and I need to tell you about your own culture. Julie Bishop was great. She she did a presentation, strutting the stage as elegantly as ever, um, <laughs> talking about uh, fashion, fashion, fashion and politics. I mean, immaculately dressed, and lots of images of her in different uh, different fashion guises, um, strolling the world stage. But actually, beautifully done. Actually, I mean, there's one with her with our dishevelled ex ex prime minister. We're about four down since Boris Johnson, in my mind. Anyway, where she's wearing this tailored <laughs> trouser suit and sort of. Uh, Anyway, but she she spoke really eloquently about how fashion can be not weaponized, but it's a kind of you know can be a cultural force, and and the, the how she had to deal with in some ways the trivialization of it, you know the minister for fashion as she was dismissed as, and she sort of embraced that as she said as a sort of badge of honor. Anyway, we've done what we've done. We've had fashion and with artistic overlap. I love Sean Gladwell. He's um, I think he's a really important artist and slightly underrated one over here. But Sean uh, did a session on stage too, an atong atem also and Ramesh Mario um, uh, Nathiandran they were they were great so I, I'm waiting to learn more about the, the contemporary state of Australian architecture uh, but it, but it's actually it's been really um, heartening the numbers of people who've come to these hubs because we, we do them in that kind of salon style at the top of the museum thank you for these thoughts um, yeah tremendously fascinating territory so um, congratulations and continue your exploration Brilliant, and uh, and when you do the um, the reciprocal UK uh, Australia hub in Sydney or Melbourne or where it's decided to, I look forward to seeing you. We, we will indeed make you welcome, and look forward to that meeting. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much. Cheers, Jonathan. Bye. Tim Marlow, uh, director, CEO of London's Design Museum. Kitchen Rudimental, a series in which chef and author Annie Smithers investigates the very basics of kitchen craft. Annie Smithers is shifting her ingredients. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Annie. How are you? What do you got? There's an egg. It's an egg. We promised roulade. We did promise a meringue roulade, so which is different to a sponge roulade. What I think we'll do is we'll make this and then I will discuss the virtues of the roulade as opposed to my... The, the, the pav that we talked about last time. That's right. Recipe's still up there if, you, if you're keen on a pav. And he's just separating uh, four, four eggs. eggs. So, four eggs, pinch of cream of tartar. Now, do you know what cream of tartar is? What is it? It's acid. It's related to tartaric acid. Well, see, now we've got a a container there that says cream of tartar, another container that you're opening that says... Well, as far as I'm aware... Tartaric acid. What's the diff? Well, it's a bit like grated sugar and icing sugar. Okay. One's been powdered up. Okay, four egg whites, pinch of cream of tartar, pinch of salt. Off we go. Off we go to the races. (laughs) Now, on the side here, I have 250 grams of sugar, caster sugar weighed out. And I have a, a baking tray that has three sides, not four. Sorry about that. And the very last piece of baking paper in your kitchen, <laughs> which isn't quite big enough. No. So, so what I'm looking for here is stiff peaks. Whisking, whisking, whisking. Have you been thinking about what you're going to cook for the festive season? It's a bit confused because I'm going to a Christmas dinner in the state, so oh. I'm thrown off my usual game. Um, That's a bit tough. Mm. You're going to pack things. Are you driving or flying? Driving probably. Oh, that's all right. You can pack an esky. Might have an esky with a yeah. ham in it. And yeah, a bit of this and a bit of, bit of that. So you can see those lovely oh, stiff peaks peaking there. up now. Yep. In goes the sugar. So with this one, and I talked about last time about just dumping the sugar in for the meringue, I'm being a little bit more circumspect on this one because it's going to be a different shape and cook in a different way to a pad. Slowly, slowly, tap it all in and you can see that I've got a lovely, firm, Mm. glossy meringue in there. I do love the gloss. Oh, it's a lovely gloss. You wait till you make some Italian meringue. Oh, yeah. Now, that's that's the glossiest of them all. Now, a little spatula. And 
I'm going to just make sure that there's nothing on the side that needs whisking in. So you can see already that this is a very simple process. And if you are a collector of egg whites in your life and you are not sure how accurate your splodging them out of the container is, um, the recognised liquid measurement of an egg white is 30 mils. That's per egg. Per egg white. Okay. So if you have a thing of egg whites in your fridge, they do freeze well too. Mm. Measure them out in the measuring, measuring jug at 30 mils each. Now you've spread this out. I've just spread that on the, the flat of the tray. tray. And that's your standard three-sided domestic baking tray, yeah. isn't it? And he's going into a preheated oven at 180 degrees for 10 minutes. And then I'm going to turn it down to 160 for five. And hopefully it'll all be nice and cooked by then. Should we point out the little bit that fell on the floor for Maggie? Where is it? Over here, Maggie. Maggie, Come on. do you want that? Oh, she's not too keen. Uh, investigated it though. So why do I like a roulade more than a pav? Well, it's the stuff in the middle of the pav, you said. Well, it's the stuff in the middle of the pav, but it's also that the the messiness of the pav. I don't know. It, it, it's a struggle for me to portion it up nicely and make it look lovely. Okay. I will make meringues in the shape of pavs where they are not so marshmallowy in the middle, but I think that's the whole idea of the pav. So the thing with a roulade is that it cooks, it's exactly the same ingredients, but it cooks in a very different way and it gives you a very different result. So you're using much more heat? Much more heat, so you'll have a browner thing. Mm -hmm. It will still puff up, but it will deflate as it goes cold. And then what we do is we turn it out, and I usually do this on either a piece of paper, a piece of foil, or a piece of cling wrap, and turn it out onto that once it's cooled, peel the backing paper off it, and then spread it with cream, and then put my chopped up strawberries in there, and then roll it up. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm being particularly fancy, I will pipe a little decoration on the top of it and stick more strawberries in it. Right. And then I can slice very beautiful slices of it. Why do they roll? Why do they have that elasticity? Why don't they just break up into a thousand shattered bits? Because uh, you haven't overcooked it. Oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> if you overcook it, it'll be really hard. So it's still what it has. Well, that's an important thing to notice. It, yeah, that. but it is that thing that it has texture, so it has the crunch from the mm. the 180. But because it's a flat surface, it cooks differently to the you know, traditional shape of a pav, and it cooks more quickly because the oven's hotter. But you still have a little bit of that chewiness. You know, some people, well, I prefer in a meringue rather than the marshmallow stuff. Which gives stuff, you the bend as well. Which gives you the bend as well. So the other thing about a roulade is that it, it can be, while you can, I mean, obviously you can do a lot of things with meringue and pavlova and things. They're all, they're all pretty much of a muchness in terms of quantities of whites to sugar. It's how they've cooked and how you've treated those different components of it. But with a roulade, it is very lovely to say you could fill it with cream and a spread of lemon butter and have a nice citrusy one. You can put a mascarpone, you know, a mascarpone filling in it and cook vin um, figs in a bit of vincotto. You know, you can put some cocoa in the meringue and have it with hazelnuts and, you know, a raspberry cream. So I think that with the roulade, to me, it's a little bit more dressed up than a classic pavlova. Mm, mm. It's got a little bit more sophistication to it, yet it is far easier to cook. It is far less temperamental than a pavlova. And it's not as garishly sort of colloquial as a pav. Nicely put. All right. Now we're going to pause momentarily. Well, no, we're going to whip some cream. Oh, all right. So while we're waiting, I'm going to whip a bit of cream to put in the middle. Fine. So this is a... Whoop, Maggie. Oh, there's meringue on the kettle. See, I just come in here and trash your kitchen, don't I? 
and again we're looking for some stiff peaks. The other thing about this is I find it an incredibly simple thing to make mm. that then has a bit of, you know, show-stopping quality about yeah. it. It does get a bit of pizzazz. Um, the meringue can be kept, you know, unfilled for, you know, if it's in an airtight container or wrapped up nicely in foil, you can definitely keep it for a couple of days, but it is always best, you know, baked on the day. Um, but you can't cream it and assemble it um, and keep it in the fridge for days. It'll just go soft, so the meringue will break down completely. So it's not something to be made in advance advance. Yeah. So, so we've got nice stiff cream there. Sounds like I won a competition and I've been driving an electric car. I got oh. it for 10 days. It sounds like that. Sounds like that, when you accelerate and deaccelerate. Makes me feel very at home that the car feels like an electric need, mixer. Well, you need an attachment for the car to whip cream. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Siri's alarm just went off. Siri's alarm did go off. So the roulade, the, the, the meringue. Oh, there we are. Lovely, lovely golden. Well, not quite golden, but a, a tawny brown. It's beautiful, isn't it? Mm. Doesn't that just fill you with joy? That is nice. That is a lovely thing. Yeah, it is going to stick a little bit, given the slightly strange arrangement of baking paper. <laughs> For which I apologise. Yes, yes. So you can see that it's this lovely, pillowy, crisp, but not too crisp type thing. I can see how this is going to roll up easily, yes. Yeah, My misgivings not... were un unfounded. They were unfounded, I'm fit, I think. All right, so that's sitting there on that's the rack sitting there. cooling. And we're going to cool that down. Once it's cooled down, we're going to spread it with the cream. I have some strawberries here that I've just chopped up. We're going to scatter those over it and we're going to roll it up. All right? I think we need another little strum of the harp. All right, now the baking pan of paper is being pulled from the back of the meringue, and the meringue's been flipped out onto some cling wrap. Now, you can use foil or another sheet of paper or um, cling wrap, whatever your little hearts desire. It is not like having a Swiss roll where you need to put down caster sugar and things on a tea towel when you wish to roll a Swiss roll tin. Mm -hmm. Right, there, there is the meringue, flat so, and anticipatory. Here is our lovely whipped cream, and we are going to spread that on about... Oh, what are we going to say, Jonathan? Four-fifths? Right. I just want a little bit at the end to tuck over, okay? So along one of the long sides, yes. you're just leaving a, a, a margin? A little margin. So 300, that's a 300ml tub of thick cream. Whipped up. Whipped. Here come the strawberries. And these are the strawberries. Now, if you've got beautiful fruit that is really highly in season, which strawberries are in Victoria at the moment, is they will be more than sweet enough. So I don't macerate those in anything, but this is just a very basic strawberry roulade. Then I'm going to pick up the the edge of the plastic and it's going to help me roll. This is so, so exciting. <laughs> we make a tight roll at the beginning so but then we just roll that over like that. Look. And look at that. Look at that. <laughs> look at that we say to everybody <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> it's like a baguette of, of meringue. It's very neat, and I am now just rolling it up again in the plastic so I can pop that in the fridge for when we want to use it. So what I would do when I was ready mm. is I would roll this out onto a nice Your cigar. long platter. Yep. And I would pipe a bit of cream across the top there. Yep. I would put my little decorative fruit flourish on the top, shake a bit of icing sugar over it, and then that is our beautiful little presentation piece of a meringue roulade. 
It's a cracking thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's wonderful, wonderful how, how formally that, that shapes up using it, the... It does formally shape up. Yeah, it is a delight to serve because then you've got these lovely little slices mm. and you can see that we've still got a bit of that yeah, marshmallowy stuff that I don't like in there, but it's not so much that I found it overwhelming. It's a nice contained, more formal version of the Pavlova. <laughs> it is, but I think it's also much easier because not everyone can make a perfect pav, but I think a lot more people could make a perfect meringue roulade. And it's, it's a bit unusual. It's not really a bit unusual. It is a bit. Well, I've been banned from ever making them as a dessert in the restaurant because apparently I've done it once too many, <laughs> too many times. But, I mean, the number of times you can think of somebody turning up with a pav yes. as against somebody turning up with a meringue roulade. Yes, and the other thing is, is you will always know that someone has gone to the effort of making this themselves because mm. you can't buy one of these in a box at the Super Duper. You certainly can't. So it's not like they've whipped in and... Uh, pretended that they've done something lovely for you and they've just gone shopping. Annie, that's a beaut. Well done. I'm glad you like it. Annie Smithers, uh, meringue roulade uh, recipe available for you in the usual place, which is, of course, the blueprint page, the Radio National website. Roulade away, tis the season to be... Uh, to be rolling. Roulading. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Thank you, Annie. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm glad that it's brought a little smile to your face. Oh, it's pleased me greatly. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Foraging, it is, it's all the rage. But do you feel like maybe you shouldn't be picking that and eating it? A little bit of knowledge is not necessarily a bad thing. And in pursuit of that, I met Diego Bonetto in a Sydney park. He's the author of Eat Weeds. And he's also an environmental educator. Diego, hello. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. We're here in this Sydney park to, to, to fill our tummies. To get some food? To get some food. Great. <laughs> it's all around us, apparently. Apparently, it's everywhere. And as a matter of fact, it is everywhere. We just walk around and there is plenty of edible and medicinal plants. It's Absolutely a, everywhere. There's a lot of, lot of grass, a lot of, lot of different, different um, leaf shapes I see there in the grass. There are trees, of course. Yep. Foraging, though, if I was sitting here thinking, okay, what about what? What of that can I eat? I'm I'm suddenly paralysed. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Foraging is the oldest of skills. We learned foraging even before we were fishes. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we do. <laughs> That's what we do. You swim around in the water, and you need to get food from around you. Okay. Yeah. So yep. that's foraging. Okay. Even before we had legs, we practiced that. So evolutionary is something that we grew up with. We, in many ways, we are what we are today because mm -hmm. we managed to find food around us and adapt it to whatever was around us, and vice versa. So foraging, not a thing to be afraid of. It's a, a natural human instinct and activity. Absolutely. And foraging is something that we practice all the time since forever and up to very recently on a regular basis. Give me an example of that. Oh, your grandmother? Tell me about her. <laughs> so foraging effectively... I'll put it simply, up to the 1930s, 40s, 80% of the world population were rural. Yes, so, you know, to engage with wild food sources was kids' games. Yes, so mm -hmm. people would just send off in the fields, get out of my hair, come back with food. <laughs> and, and so we did, and so we did. And so that is a practice that's kind of came, we kind of lost in recent generations mm -hmm. because, you know, some cultures still practice today, no wonder at all. Indigenous people still practice foraging today, lots of ethnic groups still harvest uh, plants today, here in Australia, like any other parts of the world. Yep, yep. But generically, uh, as a general statement, foraging 
became uh, was one of the lost skills mm. was preserving small pockets namely the old ethnic groups namely the communes and the permaculture realities of, of you know here in Australia and so forth and namely uh, also uh, survivalist I'm very interested in preserving this knowledge okay. because it's useful tool yes yeah and today we want it back. Well, no, yeah, give, give me a reason why today I want to be interested in this. Because today we found ourselves disconnected. Hmm. We found ourselves that with all of the environmental pressure and the environmental reality that we're facing and, and then the scare of COVID, the supermarket shelves emptied overnight, you know, people yes. just got, whoa, where's my bread? Oh, my <laughs> toilet on. paper! This, this, this system is fragile. <laughs> the system is fragile. <laughs> uh, okay, we're standing in this park. Uh, we're under this tree. And what do you see? I, I you know, I, I see one thing. I, I think you will probably see something else entirely different when you look around you. Yes. So foraging is absolutely one of the most amazing skills. It's all about seeing. Oh, it's a four-leaf clover. Yeah. <laughs> Things that you find when you look. So it's all about that. It's all about pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, once upon a time, we were able to just walk in a field and spot, you know, 20, 30 different species uh, just by the look of the way they f fly in the wind. Okay. Yep. The color, the different greens that you see in the in in in, in this. Uh, meadow that we have in front of us. What's this, for example? What's this? Mm. This would be a dock. One of the Rumex species, a dock, most probably the native one, uh, Rumex brownie, because there's a lot around over here. Yeah, quite a bit. How to tell the difference? I will need to wait for the seeds and then I can tell you which ones precisely mm -hmm. he is, but because I know this place, I assume is the native dock. This is a common plant absolutely everywhere, and most people call it a weed. Yes. And they don't even know this is native. It's not a weed. There you have it. But even if it was, your book... The book is about weeds. Eating, eating, the book is about weeds. Things. The book, uh, more than specifically, the the word weeds is about engaging with the abundance. Yes, the abundance that comes whether you want it or not. And with all of the rain we've been having in the past couple of years, there's plenty of weeds. Okay, but or or dock, as you say, a native or dock. native plant. And what would you do with that? You can eat this. This is not one of the best ones. It's rather bitter. Mm -hmm. But uh, the dock is a very um, appreciated family sort of plants. We probably, food-wise, you must you would know about sorrel. The yep. French sorrel you buy at yep. the supermarket, you probably grow it in your garden. Shape, similar shape leaves. Yeah. And uh, also buckwheat mm -hmm. um, is a similar plant, the same family, also edible that's made it commercially in our, uh, in our food stores. That thing of, of the bitterness, is that, I mean, I, I imagine with a lot of... A lot of plants, nettles, things like dock, the, the bitterness is a common, a common trait in many of those, those weedy kind of plants. Bitterness is a flavour. Many plants mm. are bitter, many, many plants are sour, some are oniony. I can see plenty of onion weed. Can you see all of this white flower? Yeah, onion That's weed. all onion weeds. Okay. Yeah, that's the, the onion weeds we get in Sydney, the Nophoscondrum. If you come with me for a walk, I also get you the free corner garlic, which is way better. Tastes like garlic. And then the sweet plants, and then there's, you know, uh, resinous plants, it tastes like grass, and, <laughs> and, and so forth, you know. So flavors are many, and bitterness is one of the flavors. So, how do you train? How do you train that eye? You say the pattern recognition, the, the knowledge you have. Yeah. This is the tricky thing, isn't it? I mean, our, our grandmothers would not have had the problem that I have of, right. of recognising these plants, of knowing, yes. knowing who's who in the zoo out there. Yeah, yeah, because they practice it. Because this is the kind of skills you uh, acquire and cultivate. Mm -hmm. As in, um, it is common for kids 
to recognize mulberries, for example. Yep. Let's talk about mulberries. Mulberries is something that the vast majority of kids in Australia have had some lived experience with, okay? Someone at school told you you can eat that. That tree there. Yeah, that tree there. The day after, you map in the whole neighborhood and find out where all of the good trees are mm-hmm. and send all of your mates to the bad ones. So, <laughs> so that's the foraging that I'm talking about. But I guess the thing is, too, to not, not to be reckless, but to approach... Approach this world with curiosity. There's plenty of information. You can, uh, I mean, I publish a book of late, but you can yep. get information from YouTube. You can get in public forums. You can talk to your old neighbour. Well, you can even show a plant to your phone. And it you will, can even tell have you what a plant tap. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can get the knowledge if you want to. Yeah, and the knowledge is there. That, yeah, that's not a problem. Let me find your plantain. Oh, yes, please. Uh, flatweeds. Here's flatweed. I can find your flatweed already. This is easy. Yeah, yep. you have this in your garden. You yeah, know. probably. Yeah, yeah. This is the kind of plant that grows and in what the do we do with that? crack of the concrete mm-hmm. driveway. I wouldn't eat that one, but yes, that's oh, the same okay. plant. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can eat this one from the park. Absolutely. This is yeah. flatweed. It's often mistaken for dandelion because it's got a similar flower. Yes. A, a yellow flower with a clock of seeds. You blow in the wind. Mm-hmm. But the difference is they hairy leaves. There's a texture to that leaf, isn't there? The yeah. texture yeah. to the leaves is hairy and the leaves has not got the sharp toothed leaves that mm-hmm. dandelion yep. would have. Yep. Yeah, so you acquaint yourself, you become proficient in these small differences. The, all you need is apply yourself and you start and to use, see details. Use and use your eyes. Yep. Dandelion, didn't need okay. to walk. Right. <laughs> Flatweed, dandelion. Yep. You place them one beside the other. But a you similar can use food wise? Similar use, both bitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, and if bitter is an issue for how you enjoy food, you would blanch them. Yes. You chuck them in boiling water, discard the water, they get less bitter, use them in pies, use them in stir-fries. even dress them with something which dress uh, works them. with that bitterness. Absolutely. Mm. Classic way to eat these plants for the Greek community is you blanch them, squeeze out the water, bit of lemon, bit of oil, bit of salt. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... The good onion weed, three-corner garlic is done for the ear. Mm-hmm. So this would be three-corner garlic. Now, try this. Okay, another. This is another of the onion weed. Similar little flower. Mm, much more. Oh, wow. Yum. How good is that? Yeah. It's like a chivey, spring oniony. <laughs> real crunchy. Oh, a really nice bit of sort of onion heat in that. Onion piece in it. Wow. As you can see, this was all onion weed yeah, it's and it's patch. done for the here. This is the seeds. Yeah, this okay. done for the here. Yeah. Don't worry. You can imagine. It'll be back. It'll be back. <laughs> It'll be back. I guess that's the thing too. If uh, Okay, we know now this patch. So yep. next year, a little bit earlier in spring, Indeed. come back here and there it will Indeed. be. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Mapping is an excellent tool for foragers. Well, that's, yeah. And also that, that sense of once you explore this once you get a, a seasonal rhythm of these things you know to indeed. go there then and go to there then indeed and you flag your calendar well my eyes are open <laughs> yeah yeah this yeah the possibilities the possibilities so next so time much of that. so much of this you just need to let your grass grow hmm. and all of a sudden you find all of this abundance well that's the important thing isn't it you let it grow let it flower let it create the full cycle yeah of its yeah. life or at least identify it hmm. Diego, how wonderful. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Well, thank you so much. Um, what lovely tastes. Well, lovely taste to finish off the Onion Weeds experience. <laughs> yes, thank you. Diego Bonetto there, author of Eat Weeds. Ah, a man at his ease. <laughs> it could only be Colin Bissett with a very comfy icon. If furniture can be assigned a gender, then the Chesterfield sofa is blatantly male. With its muscular rolled arms and low back, it speaks of gentlemen's clubs and colonial times, 
And while that may appeal to some, that patriarchal quality gives the sofa an air that many dislike. Yet its popularity seems never to have waned. The name seems defiantly English. In England, Chesterfield is the Derbyshire town whose church has a famously wonky spire. It's also a county in America, after which a brand of cigarettes was named. There's a Chesterfield coat, too, the sort with a velvet collar so loved by city gents wanting to cut a dash. It's a name, then, that seems inherently male, stylish, but somewhat cold. And yet it's difficult not to be charmed by the story of how the sofa came about. As is often the case, it starts with a British toff, Lord Stanhope, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield. The sixth Earl came up with the coat, by the way. As a diplomat and general man about town, in the mid-1700s, he needed something his visitors could sit on in his grand Mayfair mansion. It was important that it wasn't too comfortable, which could mean they might overstay their welcome, but it needed to be more accommodating than a plain wooden bench. What was made was a leather sofa with rolled arms and back of the same height, the back low so that it wouldn't crease the sitter's clothing. While it looked inviting, the seat was firm and fairly flat. This was not a sofa to sink into, but to perch on. And yet it seems that everyone who saw it thought it such a grand idea that they wanted one for themselves. Over the following century, it evolved, gaining the deep buttoning that's become an intrinsic part of its design, and even feather seat cushions for extra comfort. The shape remained the same, though. Upholstered in hide, it had a sober practicality that seemed perfect for gentlemen's clubs, with no hint of soft cushioning or any other sissy nonsense. A Chesterfield was for men, and would certainly never be found in a lady's boudoir. At least not for a while. The upholstery of the sofa, with its quilted and buttoned leather and horsehair stuffing, was similar to that used in carriages, and later in the first motor cars. The confluence of practicality and simple shape helped make the sofa as suitable for a boardroom as a library. And then things started to soften. Fabric covering made it more comfortable for a start, and when the buttoning was reduced or even eliminated, then the whole thing was softer still. By the 1970s, it was gently subverted, no longer the stiff sofa of a gentleman's study, but, covered in velvet or a William Morris floral print, perfect for the contemporary sitting room. It became... Gasp! Almost feminine. While it's a piece that really needs to be handmade to be made properly, it's also become mainstream. Scaled up so that its arms and back reach neck height or higher, it becomes positively luxurious. And with buttons made from crystal or gold, then it becomes almost glamorous. Its adaptability means it's often referred to as the mother of all sofas, its basic shape visible in so many sofa designs today. The fashion for buttoning even gave a heritage twist to modern classics, such as Mies van der Rohe's Barcelona chairs of the 1920s. While the Chesterfield might seem overly conservative today, becoming a cliché of refinement and good taste, it played an important part in the development of domestic design. A timeless classic, certainly, but one that is always ready to be redefined. Colin, thank you. Uh, Colin's icons and their footstools available for you at the ABC Listen app, uh, which is where you will find all the blueprint things. Plus, of course, new episodes of our Psycho Travel podcast, Return Ticket, Hollywood, we go there. Kuala Lumpur, yes. Tasmania, even. Check that out. ABC Listen app. I'm Jonathan Green.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.